Hey there, and welcome to the 680 News Podcast. I'm your host, John Mace. On this weekly program, we take a look at some of the week's biggest stories, offer you an inside look at our operations here in downtown Toronto. We also try and have a bit of fun. Thanks so much for tuning in. We've got a special episode lined up for you today. The premiere of a two-part series, A Day in the Life of a Toronto Police Officer. Alana Kelly, a writer for City News and 680 News, got a chance to ride along with a sergeant for a few nights. So the only option that they had was once the man kind of jumped at them, was they literally had to fight this guy. 680's Colin Robertson caught up with Alana to hear about the experience. Also coming up, the Digital Age has presented new issues for the modern parent. Among other topics this week, Ann Lavery asks an expert about giving a tablet to occupy your toddler. The Today's Parent Report coming up, but first, let's don our bulletproof vests and get right into it. We're talking about the police officer. The copper has been portrayed as a hero just as many times as a villain in pop culture, and too many times recent events have painted our officers in a negative light. Digital journalist Alana Kelly wanted to connect with an officer and experience firsthand what they deal with every day. There's a great piece of her experience on our website, 680news.com. 680's own Colin Robertson spoke with her about her time with the Toronto Police Services. So tell me a little bit about the experience that you went through with the ride-along and why you chose to do it. Yeah, so it was definitely an eye-opening experience. I had never even spoken to a uniformed police officer, so that whole interaction was very unique. Um, And I think with everything in Toronto with police officers right now, they get, I wouldn't say a bad rap, but people um, often think of police officers as one way, and they kind of have their mind made up before even knowing what it is that Toronto police officers go through. So with the story, I really wanted to give an inside look on what they deal with, what they do day to day, and profile what they experience um, through their job as a Toronto police officer. Okay. And did they give you kind of any training, any... Um, Did they they give you anything kind of just to keep you an eye out for it, how to protect yeah, yourself? Yeah, so it was really funny, actually, the couple emails that I had with the sergeants um, before I even went out, they were very adamant that I had to wear the bulletproof vest. That was a non-negotiable, so I had to wear the bulletproof vest, wear a radio so I could hear what was going on, and they were, the first couple times I went out, I didn't bring any recording devices, I didn't even take notes, I just went out and observed. Um, I wanted to get a really good feel, kind of be a fly on the wall and not interrupt any of their job. So the first time I went out, they were pretty cautious about me. They, a couple of the calls we had, they would just say, you know, stay in the car, or don't come out. So I respected that. Um, and then, you know, come my third ride along that I had done with them, they trusted me a little bit that they knew I wasn't going to kind of jump into any of the scenes. And they allowed me to come into some of the homes and um, the calls and just stand back. But yeah, they, there wasn't too much training other than, uh, you know, here's the sergeant, here's who you're with. You're only allowed to go with him. I wasn't allowed to go with any of the plane or the, any of the other officers. I could only go in the sergeant's car. When you put on that gear for the first time, uh, go through that kind of, I guess, in your head, what you were thinking when you put on the vest and the radio. What was your feelings when you put that kind of stuff on? I thought it was going to be a lot heavier. And uh, they told me that it's because I didn't have any of the gear actually in it. So that was interesting to hear. And they said, you know, it gets a lot heavier once you start putting in all the equipment that they use. And I remember when we were doing the tour of the facility, they showed me actually where they keep all the guns. And I've never even held a handheld gun in my life. And that was really interesting to see their discharge process of how they like, there was a, almost a barrel where they'd empty out the gun at the end of their night. And they said they do it every night. They come in and they grab their gun and they come in this room and it 
It was very stale, and it was very, uh, yeah, it was just a really weird experience to see, you know, what they kind of go through every day. And for them, it's almost like brushing their teeth to put on the vest and put on all the equipment and go through it. Very different for me, obviously. I'd never really experienced something like that, but uh, it was interesting to witness. Did you feel safe wearing this stuff? There was never, honestly, there was never a point that I never felt unsafe. You know, I've talked to a couple of people about the story after they read it, and they were like, you actually went in these calls? Like, you went into the homes? And it was, I think in the moment, you're very much, um, and I'm sure this is what they experienced, you're very much involved in the situation. And so I never felt unsafe. But looking back, it's like, wow, I was right there beside, you know, this guy who's claiming to have a gun, or I'm standing in the same hallway as a guy who's just allegedly assaulted his girlfriend. Um, never felt unsafe um, because I was surrounded by police officers, maybe. But yeah, there was definitely incidents where you're kind of like, wow, looking back, you're like, I was in that and I was in the moment and you never know what could happen in those situations. And I think that's kind of what they deal with day to day. So you said it, that you went out multiple times. Mm-hmm. How many times did you end up going on a ride along? Total of three ride-alongs, um, and the first two were actually during the like nighttime, but they weren't on the weekend. And you know, I got a, a pretty good understanding for what they did, but they had told me, you know, the weekends are a lot more rowdy, a lot more crazy, a lot more is happening. Um, and so they said, you know, we want you to come out on the weekend and get a feel for that because it's a completely different job. So three ride-alongs total. How different was the weekdays to the weekend? You know, definitely the entertainment district, um, that was a big shift, and that's part of Division 14, the, you know, around Spadina, Bathurst kind of area in between there. And the unique thing, I think, about 14 Division that I got to witness was they get a little bit of everything. You know, they get um, the rooming houses, they get the club district, they get um, a little bit of the nicer community areas. So on the weekend... You know, that Saturday night I went out, there was a lot of domestic calls. The gun call, actually, that I witnessed was during the week. It was on a Wednesday night. So, yes. In your article, you you did mention these things. And one that stood out was uh, a brawl in Parkdale. Mm-hmm. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? The one at the home? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that was actually one of, like, the first calls of that night on the weekend that we got. Um, and... It was, you know, you hear the call come over, and I don't know too, too much about their police calls, but you could tell it piqued Sergeant Barrera's interest, and he said, you know, we're going to go show up because they could hear over the radio that there was an altercation. And that was interesting because, you know, you're, you're in a fight, and what I experienced was the police officers can't pull away from the radio, so they instantly know if it's something that's kind of getting out of hand because they can hear the officers yelling over the radios, or you can, you can tell when it's a brawl. So we showed up, um, and they said, you know, stand back a little bit. And right when I got in, there was three other residents standing outside of the apartment building. And you could tell they were really uncomfortable. They didn't want to be in the hallway. Um, and I kind of peeked in, and very narrow hallway, um, maybe five, uh, five apartment doors on the left, five apartment doors on the right, and just the one hallway. And when I looked in, I could see them at the end, and Barrera comes in running, Sergeant Barrera, and he runs to the end of the hallway. And... Uh, it happened so quickly, and the one thing that really stood out for me was that I was standing in the hallway, and it's so quiet, and that was really interesting because, you know, when you see it on movies or you see it in TV, there's always background noise or, you're, you know, the camera angles kind of distract you from it, and I felt so uncomfortable being in that hallway because I was witnessing this very personal moment between this man who has allegedly just assaulted his woman, he, or his girlfriend, sorry, he came home from the bar that night, 
she read a message that he was speaking to another woman. Um, she approached him about it, and he, I guess, ripped a chunk out of her hair and assaulted her. She called police, and now I'm standing in the hallway, and the police officers are now having to deal with this man. And they don't know him. They don't know what he's capable of. They don't want to be part of this, but someone has called them. The woman called the police officers because she got assaulted, and now they have to deal with this, you know, over six-foot-tall guy, huge guy, clearly had been drinking. Um, and yeah, it, it just, it was very awkward almost for me to be in that hallway and neighbors felt uncomfortable and they were all kind of leaving. And that was the one thing that really stood out for me was that the hallway was so quiet and so eerie. And then within the like snap of your fingers, there was a, a smaller female officer and two male officers and they were just pinned on the ground and rolling around and they're yelling. And oh, it was just so weird to be part of that because um, I never witnessed something like that. Now, that altercation, I mean, a timeline was when the police officers showed up. Was it like 10 or 15 minutes or half an hour? Oh, my gosh. Like how it unfolded? Was it within mere seconds? Yeah. Like, I mean, so the call had already come through and then Sergeant Barrera and I showed up. So there was already the three officers on scene. I would say they'd maybe been there for two minutes, max five minutes before we showed up. We walk in, and I would say um, they were trying to get the man to come out of the room because he, they had seen him with a knife, and he apparently barricaded himself in the room. And they got him out, and from the minute they got him out to them getting him in handcuffs, it was honestly, I would say, no more than two minutes. And it happened so quickly, but it was almost, for me, in slow motion because I was witnessing it and couldn't do anything. Like, I was just standing there. But, yeah, they had him on the ground. Um, they were trying to search for a knife because they had seen one. They couldn't find one. And, you know, they ended up getting him in handcuffs. Uh, paramedics came in, assessed him make to, sh- to make sure he wasn't injured. And it was really interesting when I talked to Sergeant Barrera after because he told me that they couldn't use a taser on him because he was too close. Um, for the taser to actually work because he was literally like a foot away from these officers' faces yelling at them. Um, and they couldn't use pepper spray because if they used pepper spray, it would actually impact the officers more. And because the man had been, you know, allegedly intoxicated, it might not even impact him at all. So the only option that they had was once the man kind of jumped at them was they literally had to fight this guy. Wow. Uh, so is this a typical day? I mean, they must have gone over, I mean, once you got mm-hmm. to know Sergeant Barrera a little bit more, is this a typical day in the life of, of a Toronto police officer? Yeah, I think, you know, going out for those couple ride-alongs definitely gave me um, a good sense of what they deal with. When I asked Sergeant Barrera, I said, what do you typically get calls for? He said everything. He said, you know, gun calls. We had a break-and-enter call when I was there. Um, domestic assaults, sexual assaults, mental health calls, uh, gun calls. The week before, previously, they had actually had... Um, a homicide. And I think like they had had that literally the day before I went out with them. So 14 division, they really get a multiple range of calls and every day. And that's what Barrera really said that, you know, in being a Toronto police officer, you get calls for everything and anything. And, you know, you never know what you're going to get. You never know what experience you're going to get. But what he described it as you go from zero to a hundred and you can be sitting in the cop car doing your loops of the neighborhood and then all of a sudden everything's calm and then all of a sudden you get that car, that call, sorry, and it's lights and sirens blaring and you're speeding through Toronto trying to get right to the call. That was Alana Kelly, one of our digital journalists who wrote a great piece on 680news.com about her brief stint as an honorary Toronto police officer. Stay tuned for our next episode for part two for more about issues of discrimination and mental health among cops.
Now a recurring feature on our live broadcast of today's Parrot Report. Here's 680's Ann Lavery. Joining me in studio today, we have the deputy editor, Leah Rumack, of Today's Parent. And today we're going to talk about three topics. So we're going to talk to you about choosing a legal guardian. There are three steps to that. And what else are we going to talk about, Leah? We're going to... When babies cry, parents cannot focus. Well, there's a surprise. No kidding, but there's science behind it. So we'll find out a little bit more about this. We will start with this story. I'm kind of debating yes or no if you're a bad parent by occupying your child with a tablet. Well, I hope not, because then I am going to bad parent jail. I have a five and a half year old, and I'm not going to lie, we're probably guilty of, you know, letting him use it a little bit more than you're supposed to. There's lots of recommendations around what people call screen time, um, you know, and, you know, purists like uh, say, you know, under two, nothing, no screen time at all, no TV, no tablets. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, toddlers born in say 2010 my son was born in 2011 those kids are the first they're digital natives they're the first kids who are surrounded by tablets and they know nothing else nope they're growing up with them it's like they're it's a plaything just like a ball yeah but i think the the idea is do you let them use the ipad or do you give them a paintbrush The science is still very new, obviously, seeing as tablets have only really been around in a way that kids use them as toys for six, seven years. That's not enough time to really give definitive longitudinal studies about how it affects people's creativity or problem solving or social skills or anything like that. So I think where people always sort of end up is it's okay, but set limits. Moderation. Everything in moderation. At the end, do we think of it as kind of a win-win-win? There's, you give your child your iPad so there's no mess. The kids are quiet. They're entertained. And we get to do what we need to do. A lot of parents use it to, you know, try and buy themselves that 20 minutes to get the laundry done or make dinner. And, you know, that's how I use it in my house. But, you know, What all the studies sort of say so far is the best way to interact with, you know, an iPad or with any kind of device is to do it together, you know, and have a conversation, have a conversation about it. Play the games together, Play the games together, know what your kid is looking at and reading like my husband and my son play a reading game together and they also play Minecraft all the time together. But it's something that they do together. And like my son doesn't even really like to do it himself. It's something that he does with his dad. And it's a building game. And they share and they have fun. It's a thing they do together. So it's not so much just monitoring. Of course, you want to do that. You want to pick the right apps. You want to make sure they're not going somewhere they shouldn't be going on YouTube. But, you know, you can play things together on the iPad just like you can play a board game or just like you can play Lego. You can play chess together on an iPad. So I guess the tool may change but what the kids learn hopefully they take away is the same let's talk about the study when babies cry parents cannot focus on a task now this was a study that came out of the university of toronto and uh, they found that uh, parents don't do quite as well when there's a crying baby around 
Well, if you've ever been in the house with a screeching newborn, you can imagine why. But it's actually a lot more than just the noise. It's, you know, you know, they say, oh, mother's instinct, you know, women sleep with one ear open, blah, blah, blah. But they found that it actually rattled what they called the adult's executive function or the part of the brain that helps you make decisions and like, you know, power through your to-do list, for example. The cognitive conflict. The cognitive conflict. And actually, the fact that it rattles and makes it difficult to make a decision, they said was trying to override your instinct, which would be to drop everything and go help your baby. But this, you know, has evolved in a way that you're like, wait, should I pick these berries because we need food? Or should I tend to my baby who's just fussing? So it's like a way of like trying to make decisions that are the right decisions at the time. Now let's go to the next topic, choosing a legal guardian. There are three basic steps. And this is a tough one. You really have to stop and think, who is going to be the legal guardian? It's tough for you, but I think it would be better you choose than have the courts appoint one. I mean, everybody always thinks, oh, what are the chances of both me and my spouse dying at the same time? Well, you know what? It happens. <laughs> you know, car accidents, serious illnesses. And so it is something really important that you want to put in place because you don't want other people making the most important decision of who's going to raise your children for you. What's step number one? So step number one is make it official. Like you really want to make sure you have wills. If you're a two-parent family, you should both have your own wills, but with an identical guardianship clause that, you know, put someone who you have named in the legal position to take immediate charge of your children. They're going to have to eventually apply for permanent custody, but it's super unlikely that a court will second guess your choice. What happens if you didn't appoint a, a legal guardian in your will at the time? If no guardian is specified in your will, things usually go three ways. Usually a family member or a friend steps up and is appointed by the court. Uh, if there's a custody battle, a judge will choose a guardian based on the best interests of the child. And if no one steps up, child protection will step in. What about the second step? So the second step is how to make your choice. This is really a hard choice to make because you're trying to imagine your child in someone else's home. So a good way to go about it is try to imagine someone like you that you have a lot in common with, uh, you know, trying to find a fit for values, geography, family connections. It can be a huge challenge, particularly if you have, a, you know, a two-parent family where they're from different parts of the country or even different parts of the world. Where does that kid go? Uh, then you also want to consider parenting style. Um, you want to consider, you know, are things like suburban versus urban important for you? Uh, do you want them to stay close to their grandparents? If so, which grandparents? And if the kids are old enough, you can ask them their feelings. They may have a choice. They may have an opinion. Might surprise you too. What's number three? Number three is make your wishes known so there's no surprises at a really bad time. So, you know, my husband and I, we have, you know, two sides. We both have siblings. All the siblings and all the grandparents know what is in our will and, you know, what would happen to custody of our son if anything were to happen to us. And it's also a good idea to review the agreement with your 
chosen guardian every few years, you know, things can change. They can have more kids. Your kid gets older. They move. They don't have a job. Who knows? You know, like we might change our guardianship agreement if my youngest sister gets married. And you know what I mean? So these things do change. But the important thing is to make sure everybody knows. Okay, well, that's terrific. Well, thank you for joining us again in studio. Thanks, Anne. That was our Anne Lavery with Leah Rumack of Today's Parent. Check them out online for more. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks a lot to you for listening. To all my contributors and guests for this week, a reminder that we'd like your feedback for future episodes. You can send your comments or story ideas to at John Mace 680 News on Twitter, or you can reach the listener line at 416-872-6800. Your feedback would be appreciated, and your recorded comments could make it on to future episodes. I'm John Mace, and thanks for listening.